The Old Testament and New Testament are together a large-scale narrative characterized by typological promise and fulfillment. And I just want to say a word about that. Typological, or a type, is when there's something that, in a sense, casts a shadow of the fullness of that thing. So let me just give you one example in Scripture. In a sense, King David is a type of King Jesus because he sits on the throne. He has promised his uh, throne will last forever and he will have descendants who reign forever. So there's a lot of things like that in Scripture where in the Old Testament it gives us a picture of something, but we're going to get the fullness of that thing in the New Testament. Okay, So do you understand what I mean by a type, typological? So in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of typological promises and in the New Testament, they're fulfilled. Okay, So that's how the story works. But the Bible makes up an overarching story that begins in Genesis and concludes in Revelation. It begins in the Garden of Paradise and concludes in the City of Paradise. Okay, and so we're going to think about this story as, um, as in six parts as if we were thinking about a six-act um, play or something like that. Okay, So let's just jump right in. In the first um, part, and I know that this is probably not huge, but ho- hopefully be able to read this or just... Um, just just listen along or follow the um, the handout is creation. So this is the story that we get in the first two chapters of the Bible, and we see God is creating this good and beautiful uh, world. But at the the pinnacle of His creation is human beings, the man and the woman. They are the last thing that He creates, and um, says that they are very good, and He breathes His own life and breath into them, and. They're called Adam and Eve. Adam meaning man, and Eve means mother of humanity. And these humans are given authority and dominion over the creation. They're to exercise what we might call a responsible stewardship of this big, beautiful world that God just created. And um, he sends them out with a commission, and he says what? Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the face of the earth. Um, they are called to live in relationships. This is what the text um, implies, is that they're called to live in relationships of trust and love with God and each other. Okay? All is going great, right? What could be wrong? You're living in the paradise of Eden and God's presence is everywhere and he's given you uh, ownership of everything and co-ownership and co-rulership of everything. And um, the thing about Adam and Eve, what... How the Bible is presenting them in one sense is, yes, as the mother and father of all of humanity, but also as what we might call in Greek icons. That An icon is something that bears an image. So there's an icon of, of the Virgin Mary up there with, with baby Jesus above the doorway. That's a, in orthodoxy called an icon or in the Catholic world. And what those are meant to do, if you see, there's always gold around the saints or Jesus in those pictures. And those Icons are meant to reflect the glory of God in his saints, okay? So, in a sense, all human beings are icons. They, they, reflect the, uh, they reflect the glory of God's image, and so they're called image bearers, right? We were talking about that last week, right? Image bearer, image bearer. People are, every person is an image bearer. And what that means, it doesn't imply only um, dignity that someone bears God's image, but also it's a vocation, it's a role. And as an image bearer, you are meant to reflect or represent God's being to the world around you. So they're like Adam and Eve are like little angled mirrors that shine out the light of God to the world around them. Okay, And in the ancient Hebrew um, world of Genesis, people would have read this and thought of this as, in a sense, this creation is like a temple and Adam and Eve are the priests. And instead of this temple having... Um, an idol which represents the God and reflects the God like most temples would have in that ancient Near Eastern world, this temple, the cosmos, has a living, moving, breathing representative of the God, and that is Adam and Eve, okay? Now, that was part one. We're already done with one act of the play, okay? So it's going really fast. So let me, and I'll make a couple points along the way about evangelism and sharing the Bible or sharing from Scripture, sharing the story of the, the gospel with people, is that you want to talk about how the Bible begins with good and beautiful news and it ends with good and beautiful news. And so humanity started off good and in, it was created for relationship with God. That's one great important thing to share with people is that you were created for relationship with God, just like Adam and Eve. 
and you bear, you were created to reflect his goodness and his beauty to the world around you. Okay, and then we get into um, Genesis uh, chapters 3 through 11, and in Genesis 3, we get what we traditionally call the fall, although that, that word's not in there, but it's just a description of what happens. And so what happens there, as you know, is that um, in yielding to the lies and temptation of a malevolent spiritual being, we won't go into a whole bunch of background about that, but God's image bearers end up choosing their own way. Okay? They, they believe the lie that God isn't really good, that he doesn't want them to have all that they need. And so they partake of that forbidden fruit that God commanded them not to and promised that they would die if they did. And the results of this act of rebellion and waywardness are, are devastating. And there is these things. There's alienation between God and humans. So there's the vertical uh, brokenness that happens. But then there's also alienation between humans. Remember, they, they start to blame each other. He did it, she did it, the serpent did it, and all of that stuff. So right away, we see this part of the story when you're sharing with people and there's not a single person in the world who would deny that the world is a broken and messed up place. Okay, Anybody can relate to that. Believer, unbeliever, Muslim, Hindu, Christian, Buddhist, atheist. Everybody can relate to that. And we as Christians, when we're sharing with people, we have a story that explains that. That alienation between human beings who hate each other because of their politics or their race or their whatever, the religion... That, that alienation has a source, and that is sin in the fall. Okay? We have a framework uh, of a story that explains exactly why the world is in the pickle that it is in today with sin and evil and violence. But then there was another result, and that was alienation between humans and creation. And so God tells Adam as a punishment, he is going to have to till the ground by the sweat of his brow. To There's going to be thorns and thistles and all that stuff amongst the fruit of the ground. But um, so even creation is broken because of the alienation that happened at the fall. Even our relationship with creation is broken, right? You plant a garden and, you know, the third of it dies, at least when I plant a garden, a third of it dies and that's what happens. Or insects begin to eat some of your tomato plants and that's a, that when you look at that, you can say, this is a result of the alienation of creation because of the fall, right? It's a, it's a broken world. If anybody wants to stop me along the way and ask questions, feel free. Just put a hand up or shout my name because I know I'm moving kind of fast here. Okay, the story of that devastation continues throughout Genesis chapters 4 through 11. Genesis chapter 4, you get Cain and Abel, the first murder. You get, uh, uh, um, what's his name, uh, J- uh, uh, Tubal Cain, who's even worse than Cain and more violent and more wicked in a boastful way. And you just get this sort of downward spiral of wickedness and then you get the flood and all those things because God is so grieved at the wickedness and evil of humanity. But you see that what's happened is this infection has broke out. And it's like a, it's a million times worse than any coronavirus because it infects everybody. Everybody gets infected. And as of yet in the story, there's not a cure provided for it yet at this point in the story, right? For that infection of sin that embraces every human heart. Okay, It's like the Bible Project has this great cartoon video of it and they show this picture of like a human heart and a serpent, like this black serpent like wraps around it and like sinks its fangs into it. It's a grotesque picture, but it's, the, it's an accurate picture of sin. It's a power that takes over every human heart. It causes us to want to try to live for ourselves to stay in alienation from God and other people. So the rest of that, that kind of depressing and dismal story is found in Genesis 4 through 11. Okay, so that, that's the second part of the act. So we have creation and fall so far. Now we start to get to some of the good news. And part three of the Bible is what we might call redemption initiated. Okay, so it's the, it's the launching of the plan of redemption. And it is, we're not yet to Jesus. We're now getting into the rest of the content of the Old Testament. We, we might, well, right at this point, we're kind of going to talk about the rest of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12 is a turning point. It's a turning point and it, because it's where God calls Abraham or Abram when he first calls him. And it's a turning point where God begins to initiate the redemption of not only um, Abraham, but of the entire world. God has begun something new in Abraham. And the rest of this part of the story runs all the way through Nehemiah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way up through the book of Nehemiah is a lot of the narrative history of what happens next. 
So what, what, how does God initiate redemption? He chooses Abraham, a man, not because Abraham is particularly great, and I know that Sunday school Bible stories portray it that way for kids, but God chooses Abraham mostly just by, by like, the, any re, for, uh, just like God causes, yeah, yeah because of his grace, right? Because God is committed to redeeming his creation. That's what we get out of that story. But God chooses Abraham by his grace to be the ancestor of a nation um, who will experience a renewed relationship with God. So what does he tell him? He says, you're going to be the father of many, and I'm going to uh, bless you, and you're going to, your descendants are going to be like as numerous as the stars of the sky. He tells him, go look in the sky. See all those stars? You're going to have more descendants than that. And so something has been initiated in this relationship with this man, Abraham. What's that? Did you have a question? No? Okay. He said I have a song about that. Oh, okay. You have a song about that? <laughs> Father Abraham? Yeah, that's a good one. My kids like that one. Yes. It goes in your head when you hear the name, doesn't it? All of a sudden. Yeah, you just, yeah. Um, maybe we can do that one next week. Then. Um, Don't get all on our heads. Turn around. Sit down. Okay. So, so now get this. This is a really, really fascinating connection. This people, which we know is Israel, the Israelites, right? God's chosen people. Those are the descendants of Abraham. They're called very much in the same way as Adam and Eve were to carry forward the image bearer call or mission. Now, why do I say that? Because God calls them to embody his life and his values and to reflect him in a world that's corrupted by sin and evil, right? He calls them to be holy, set apart, to be different, to shine his light and what he's really like in a world of darkness, okay? So there's a sense in which God keeps, um, he keeps calling people to pick up this vocation of reflecting his image accurately and faithfully to the world around him. You're going to see that this carries through all of scripture and, and is still today what we're called to do, okay? So, um, yeah, God says to them, Leviticus, um, be holy as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And that word holy, it means what? How would you define that? So separate. Real... Separate, yeah, separate, good. Set apart, yeah, exactly. So God, just as God is other than, he's different than everything else, he's set apart because he's perfect and, and good and beautiful and all those things, Israel was called to be like God, separate. They were set apart from all the other nations. Yahweh said, I'm taking Israel for myself, okay? And they're going to be holy like me. They're going to be different. And so the other thing that happens in Genesis 12 is that God promises Abraham he's going to bless all the nations of the earth through his ancestors. So this one nation, Israel, is going to be the means by which, the vessel by which God ends up blessing all of the world, okay? Now, an important part of this story that I didn't touch on in the slides is that in um, Genesis chapter 11, um, t- Genesis chapter 10 and 11, are some interesting things happen. You have the Tower of Babel, the story of Babel, and God scatters the nations, okay? But one thing that happens then, we know this because um, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an obscure passage in Deuteronomy 32, God apportions all the nations according to the number of the spiritual beings who can rule over them in the heavenly realm. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's worth mentioning. I have a whole teaching on this for another time. But God himself says, I'm taking Israel. And so he gives these other sinful, wicked nations over to these spiritual rulers, these divine beings um, that are created beings, to be ruled by them. And these are beings who don't rule with justice. And their wickedness is reflected in the people of their nation. But Yahweh says, I'm going to set Israel apart for myself, and they're going to reflect me faithfully. Well, they're, they're supposed to, right? I'm going to break part three here just because so much happens in the scriptures and the rest of the Old Testament down into five quick stages. See how I kind of snuck that in there? But we're still just going to say this is the Bible in six parts. But there's five stages of this part of Israel's story. And this is so important. It's so important to know your Old Testament and to read it and to understand it because it's all connected to the gospel. It's all connected to the gospel. Is it all connected to the gospel? It's all connected. See, Nick believes it. Nick said it. I believe it. That settles it. Um, so 
So the first stage we could think of in the life of Israel is Abraham and the patriarchs. And the promise is for greatness. God says, I'm going to make you great. You're going to have progeny, many descendants. You're going to be blessed. Anybody who blesses you will be blessed. And anybody who curses you will be cursed. I'm going to watch your back. And God's like, I've got your back. And I'm going to lead you to land. Okay, Land in the Old Testament is of utmost importance because you have to have a place to live and flourish and build families and have a nation and a in a civilization. So God says, I'm going to take you to this promised land where you can flourish. Okay. Um, so what we see is that in this calling of Abraham, God is determined to rescue people from the effects of the fall. He wants to rescue them from the effects of the fall. Because okay? they were, people have been exiled from God's presence and God wants to do something about that. He wants to change that and bring them to a place of goodness and flourishing. So God's purpose is to put his own power and goodness on display in the midst of a concrete human community who embody his ways. That was what Israel was called to do. What what are some of the ways that God did that in the stories of Israel? How are some of the ways God puts his own power and goodness on display for Israel? There's some really easy big ones. When their enemies take over, he finds somebody to lead them. Victory. Yep, so victories in battle, supernatural victories. Yep, what else? How does God display his power and glory through the stories of Israel? He makes the other gods look bad. He makes the other gods look bad. He does. <laughs> what else? Come on. Come on. Okay, he protected them from plagues and things like that supernaturally. What else? There's a really big one that, that we're missing. He parts the Red Sea, right? That's probably the grand display of his power as he he takes the sea and splits it so that they can get away, right? So there's so many ways, right? Um, The story of Elijah and Mount Carmel. God sends fire from heaven to consume all the water and the sacrifice on the altar. So there's so many ways that God just continually supernaturally demonstrates his his power and his love and his goodness among his people. Is, he, is, is, this, the same, is this the same God that we serve today? Yes. Yes. Does this God today like to supernaturally display his power and love and goodness among his people? Yes. Yes. Amen. Now I'm preaching. Um, okay. Second stage of redemption initiated is exile, which is Egypt and, and the exodus. So what happens is that... Um, we see God sustaining his people over the course of hundreds of years through famine and the story of Joseph and all that. He, then he delivers them miraculously from tyranny and oppression in Egypt, right, where they were, they were enslaved. Right? You can read the last you know, 20 or so chapters of Genesis and the early Exodus to get this story. Um, and when he pulls them out miraculously of Egypt, just as a mere act of grace and love, he leads them to, um, to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law. And he, what he's doing by giving them law through, through Moses is enabling Israel to live that holy life that he said that they needed to live, to be set apart from other nations. The law, Torah, means instruction, and it was instructions for how to live in a, in a unique way, in a holy way, so that other nations could tell that you were different and that God's presence and blessing was on you in the way that you lived. It was even, we don't think about this, but Israel was called to be evangelistic. They were meant to be a light to the other nations, right? To, yes, to show, like Carmen said, to make the other gods look bad and to show that they were bad, these lesser gods, but also to draw people to the true God. And there was a way that you could, um, foreigners and could, could join up with Israel and become a part of, of that family. But why did half of them not believe? Are you talking about when we get to the times of Jesus, or do you just mean back then when they were just disobedient? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they do. I mean, that's the next thing, right, is that... Well, but that's, that's further along. And yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. But even, but even so, even at this point in the story, you see that Israel fails to trust God, and they're left wandering in the wilderness as a result of it. They don't go in and trust him for victory, so he lets them wander for 40 more years. So the next time God gives you an assignment, don't shirk back because he will let you wander in a spiritual wasteland sometimes. He will. He does. And he does that in different ways today still. But anyway, because he wants us to learn that his way is the best way. So they're left wandering in the wilderness instead of entering the promised land, right? Initially, anyway, in this period of exile. 
Okay, what happens next is what we might call, this is in the book of Joshua and Judges, is conquest and settlement. And that's where they finally get to the promised land under Joshua's leadership, and he breaks it all up among the tribes, and he settles them there. They conquer the uh, many peoples of the land of Canaan. And what we see is that if God's people trust him, he's going to lead them into a land that's actually reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. It's a land that's flourishing with trees and river and waterways and milk, a land of milk and honey. And that even the way that it's described in scripture, we're meant to see clues that it's kind of like God's plan is to lead people back into the Garden of Eden. Liter- not literally, but in a, um, in, a, in a spiritual, but also in a physical sense. And guess what? That's still his plan. We're going back to Eden, folks. I'm telling you, the new Jerusalem, but we haven't got that far in the story yet. But anyway, we see these themes continue to pop up through Scripture, just like we see the image bearer theme continue to pop up that God wants his people to be, to reflect his image faithfully to the world around him. So we see also a theme of where God wants his people to ultimately land, and that is in a good dwelling place where they can flourish. And so it is... Um, at this point. Okay, so now they get into the promised land. They get into the promised land and they they demand a king. They want to be like the other nations and have a king. They don't want to be a theocracy anymore where they're directly ruled by God through mediators like Moses. They want to be uh, a monarchy. They want a king. And God says, that's not a good idea. And they say, we want a king. No, we're really sure we want a king. And God says, that's not a good idea. Kings are evil and greedy. And they say, no, 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 we want a king. And he goes, okay, have it your way. Samuel, go get Saul and make him king. And then we see what happens is that um, what happens, though, with the monarchy is that what God is doing is he's kind of delegating his own kingship over Israel to a human king, to to a human king who is, of course, supposed to rule justly over God's people so that they can flourish in the promised land. Well, we know how that goes. I mean, out of, I can't remember how many kings, biblical kings there are in this period, but a very, very small percentage of them are righteous and just. Right? David is unusual. And even he, is. it's even revealed that he has sinful motives and a wicked heart. So sinful motives and wicked hearts ruin the success of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. And the kingdom crumbles, and then it splits. To the northern kingdom and into the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom of uh, Judah and southern of Israel, right? I think I, I always mix those two up, but I think that's right. Israel is the southern kingdom, and northern kingdom is Judah, okay? And there's animosity between them. And so, again, we see that what happened at the fall, that rupture between God and humans and humans and humans, is manifest over and over and over again, even within God's own people, that alienation from one another, right? They're warring, they're battling, they're fighting over this, that, and the other thing. And we just see that that continued effects of sin all throughout the biblical story. Okay, and then finally in this part of the story, number five is exile and return. And so what happens is that um, as a result of just ongoing disobedience and rebellion and an unwillingness to really live um, holy as unto the Lord, God allows his people to be exiled. And that that happens through warfare and various things. And so these world kind of ancient Near Eastern superpowers dominate them and they're first they're exiled um, under the Assyrians in 721 BC, okay, and then they're and then eventually under the Babylonians, um, who who destroy the first um, temple. Okay. So then now we're kind of coming to the very end of the Old Testament. We're already see how we we're 20 minutes in and we're already at the end of the Old Testament. This but this long third part of the narrative, which is essentially all the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets. All the prophets are mostly speaking to God's people while they're in exile, for the most part. Because so, there's, there's hundreds of years that they're, they're kind of just not flourishing. They're under God's judgment. Um, and the narrative of the Old Testament, it ends with a mix of despair and hopefulness. It ends with like, the temple got rebuilt, but it's pretty lame, truth be told, compared to the first one. It's kind of a, an abysmal copy of it, and it's smaller, and it's just not as good and God's people just are not flourishing. They're not really hearing the word of the Lord much. Um, Remember that passage from Amos on Sunday that we heard? Um, 
who was reading on Sunday? I forget. Was it you, Carmen? Jeannie was reading. And so she was reading Amos and it says, the Lord says, I'm going to send a famine on the land, but it's not going to be a famine of food and water. It's going to be a famine of people hearing my words. Right? Um, And so there was a, there, that's kind of how the Old Testament ends is that God's people are kind of sitting under his judgment. They're not flourishing. And then they go through a period. Now, in between the Old and New Testament times, there's a, year, a period of about 400 years. Okay? And you know, people refer to that different things, the silent years. The, you know. And so what happens historically is that Israel is, um, they're just constantly conquered and dominated by a number of world powers. Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, the Ptolemaic, the uh, Ptolemaic, the Seleucids, and all these things. And then we get to um, the New Testament, and who are they dominated by at that point? Rome. 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 Okay, so the Jews are kind of scattered throughout the land because of exile. They're in different countries and nations, but they're in that ancient Greco-Roman world. They are ruled by the Romans, and they're overtaxed, and they're overburdened and everything. Remember? Two weeks ago, when I was talking about um, the call of Levi, the tax collector, and how tax collectors were kind of puppets of Rome, and so they were hated by their fellow Jews and things like that. So that all fits into this story. Right, so that's... That, yes, go ahead. I have a question. Yeah, yeah. Since you brought it up. Sure. The word Jews. Uh-huh. Israelites split northern and southern to Judah. Yeah. Did just Judah become Jews and the others remained Israelites? Yeah, that the word, um, the word come up Jews. Yeah, I, I forget how that um how that develops historically because you get the term Judaism and Paul uses the term Judaizers yeah. in the in the New Testament, but it does originate with the Judah Israelites. But I can't remember how the rest of Jews in the world um and so, ended up um acclimating to that name. So the other Israelites, they were just left. They were in Israel. Let, right? let, let go or what? Well, there, there, there was what we refer to historically as the diaspora in all of Israel. Ju, Ju, I mean, all Judah and Israel alike, they just kind of ended up scattered all over the place because of this constant um, historical sort of rotation of just being dominated and conquered by different powers and just scattering here and there in exile. Yeah, so they're, they're all over the place um, at the time of, that, that Jesus comes onto the scene. Okay, but they're dominated, the Jews are dominated by the Romans. Okay, that's kind of the ancient um, Eastern superpower, uh, world power at, at the time. Okay, that's how the Old Testament ends. So any, any, any questions or comments on that before we jump into the next part of the, um, the, the biblical story? That, I think it's just so helpful to be, have that in the back of your mind as you minister to people, especially when you get to have more extended conversations with people to share, and I've, I've had that opportunity to share with people um, a bit more because we had more time to share more about the biblical story and try to connect and give people, when you have the opportunity to give people some background to Jesus, it can be really helpful when they, they begin to understand that he's not just um, this kind of savior who materializes from heaven. He's a Jew from the line of Judah and from the line of David and things like that who has a lot, um, who, who's who has great significance for the Jewish people specifically as well. Okay. All right. So, so yeah, like I said, there were many prophecies of this Messiah king um, who was who going to restore Israel to flourishing, but those are left unfulfilled at the end of the Old Testament period. So, you mean, obviously we see those begin to be fulfilled in the, in the first one of the time. Okay, so part four is redemption accomplished. Redemption initiated was Abraham and, and the people of Israel, and now we get to the New Testament and we um, begin to jump into the accomplishment of redemption. And that is what largely is what we read about in the Gospels with Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So into the exile and despair of his chosen people, God sends one more king, his own son. The, the, um, the language of Jesus being a king is not, um, is not explicit in the Gospels until you get to the, the passion narrative where he asks, um, are you a king? But it's subtle, but it's there. We see him, we see he is, he is indeed a king, but just a different kind of one, okay? So he's, he's sending Israel a king. God is, God is 
terms, in, in a sense, becoming king again of Israel, but he's doing it through his, his human son. But he's a different kind of king, right? He's, he walks around and he has these healing powers. He can speak a word and demons leave people and are exercised. He, he raises up dead people and, and he heals lepers by touching them and things like that. He, and then he also embraces sinners and outcasts, people that would normally never be allowed in the presence of a king. But Jesus uh, sort of gravitates to them and fellowships at the table with them and all this stuff. He challenges the religious establishment of... Um, the abbreviation there is for Second Temple Judaism, which was the Judaism of the time of Jesus because it was the Second Temple. It was Judaism under the Second Temple. So it's, it's referred to historically as, as um, Second Temple Judaism or shorthand 2PJ. Um, so he's, he's challenging the status quo of how Judaism is lived out and taught by the Pharisees and scribes and, and all of this. So he certainly is not um, your normal king who's ruling from a physical throne and, you know, giving orders and um, with military might and all that. And his battles are directly and immediately spiritual. They're against sin, they're against sickness, they're against demons, right? They're against spiritual uh, opposition from his opponents. But they are, they are political, but only indirectly so. Right? Jesus doesn't come on and say, we've got to overthrow Rome. Come on, Jews, unite. And this is one of the reasons he wasn't liked, is because he wasn't saying that. It was more subtle, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But at the same time, through his teachings, his, his kind of upside-down inverted values that really were shocking to a culture of you know, ascendancy and honor and shame and all these things, Jesus was teaching people to go low and live with humility and wash feet and be a servant and all these kind of things, forgive your enemies. But it was indirectly, uh, his, 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 uh, his battles are indirectly political because in a sense, it does undermine the empire to live in such a way, just not with military might, but through service and self-giving love and through supernatural healing power and things like that. The, the empire and the... Uh, the establishment, the social and political establishments of the day, which focus on um, how great people can become. In the eyes of man, he's indirectly undermining all that by calling people to be servants and to, and to um, lay down their lives for each other. That's got implications for today, but I'll have to preach on that sometime about Jesus' values and his battles and how they relate to the politicals here in our, in our world. But... Um, so Jesus is probably the most unusual thing about this king is his ascendancy to the throne. And his ascendancy to the throne is, is unusual to say the least. It comes through um, humiliation and torture and ultimately death. That is, that is how our king <clears throat> excuse me, um, ascends to his throne. I'd um, like to take a minute to just think about that for a second. The way of Jesus. The way that Jesus ascends. Thank you, Lord. So he's he's seemingly he's he's wiped out by the empire and and by the religious establishment. Um, crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Right? <clears throat> Release Barabbas and crucify him. He's disrupting the status quo. He's going to get us Jews in trouble with Rome because he's got all these followers, and he's, you know, he's 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 liable to disrupt the the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and um, anybody who does that is going to get the rest of his people in trouble. And so, they they um, he's sentenced to crucifixion, and all seems hopeless and lost, except dun, 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 for one unprecedented event. I feel like we need a drum roll. It's all is lost except for one unprecedented event, and that is that God raises his son from the dead, vindicating him not only as king of Israel, but Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah! Don't you always want to get up and shout at that point? It's like, boom! Yes! That is the, that is the mic drop right there. God gets the last say in that story. And so Jesus is vindicated on the third day. That's why we make such a big deal out of Easter with candles and incense and loud music and all that stuff because we're celebrating the glory of the risen Lord of heaven and earth. And so 
Um, so God's plan the whole time was actually to, to allow Jesus to be handed over to death. That was part of God's plan. And so while the enemy and all the principalities and demonic powers of this world thought that they had put an end to God's good plan, they actually in some ways cooperated with it by, put, by having Jesus put to death through the human establishment. And so God used that plan as a means of triumph over sin, evil, and death. And now, now anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved, will be, will be made whole. Any, any questions or thoughts at this point? I feel like this is a good part, point, point to just um, take some, have a, a, a little bit of discussion. And kind of getting a feel for how the narrative flows through Scripture so beautifully. If we're connecting this to um, a situation where we're, we have the opportunity to share Mm-hmm. with somebody about Jesus, it might be, this is a great opportunity to talk about um, this, uh, you know, th- there's, a, there's a quote from the Church Fathers that says, what, what God has, what Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. Mm. And so when we, when we talk about the incarnation, when we talk about the way that From the beginning of this narrative, from creation to, to, to the fall, from that point forward, mankind has been doing horrible things to one another in the name of greed, lust, envy, covetousness, hatred, self-will, and pride. And, you know, the, the sun has gone down many a day. The sun has gone down many a day when it looked like evil got the last word. Mm-hmm. But it still worked mm-hmm. that way. In many yep. cases, yeah. It does. And this is, the, this is the beautiful thing, is that was exactly the way that God chose to bring about our salvation. Mm-hmm. When the sun went down the day that Jesus died, it looked to all intents and purposes that the great sort of messianic hope of Jesus' followers had been crushed and stamped mm-hmm. out. And they were distraught and scattered and hopeless and afraid. Mm-hmm. And it was out of that environment that God brought miraculous new life mm-hmm. and in new breath and began to recreate humanity. Yeah. And so the, the idea of atonement, um, you know, at one meant to bring us back into oneness with God. Mm-hmm. There was a, a you know, th- there are many, uh, many things that happened on the cross, but that, that idea of substitution, mm-hmm. Jesus stood in the place of every person who's ever said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he experienced that until his very last breath left his body. Yeah. That's good. And it was done. That's right. He, he entered into the, all of the darkness and brokenness and, and, and felt it all uh, on the cross, right? All of the humanity's darkness. And like you said, Marla, it still seems like... Many times. It still seems like today that, that, that evil still has the last word. But the thing is this, is that our hope is just like it was for Jesus and his disciples is, is resurrection. Just as he was raised and vindicated, so will all of his people in the end of the world. And so... Our hope is in resurrection unto eternal life, right. unto a new creation, a new Jerusalem, as we'll get to um, in a few minutes here. Um, but the way to, you know, Jesus' way of um, overcoming evil and sin and all those things, um, it's not through combating it externally with military might. It's by, you know, like he ta- tells all of his parables, it's like being yeast in a loaf of bread. It's like, the seeds of the kingdom are planted and they just begin to grow all throughout the world where there's these little pockets of humans being made whole because of the proclamation of the gospel. And even when a Christian is killed, say, for instance, as a martyr, um, there's, it's still all evil isn't getting the last say because that person is going to be raised up when the creation is renewed. And, you know, that there was this old, there was this other quote, um, that by one of the church fathers, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so it's like anytime the devil tries to wipe out the church and there's martyrs, something seems to happen supernaturally where the gospel begins to charge forward even with, 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 a, um, with a vengeance, so to speak. It begins to multiply exponentially through, through that, and that, that bears out um, historically. Right? St. Athanasius said... Yeah. God became man, so yeah. man can become God. Mm-hmm. There's no other, uh, no other major religion 
that has this at the store at the center of the story that God would humble a God would humble himself yeah. and literally become one of us and yeah. suffer with us. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a great point. That is that's a, and that's an evangelism point, right? Is that like what Zach was just saying? Is that there's no other faith or spiritual path that teaches that that God comes to in humility to rescue you, right? It's it's usually about what you have to do to please God or to rise up to some state of mental clarity or enlightenment or something. And what's unique about Jesus is that He comes to rescue us. That's a really big evangelism point in sharing the gospel with people. Yeah. And I also add one thing is that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the important thing about, about Christianity, um, th- these things happen in history. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, I, I studied history when I was in college, and I can recall uh, having a discussion with a professor of mine. And I remember asking her, you know, she wasn't a Christian, and I remember asking her, what, are, what do you make of sort of the evidence about Jesus' resurrection? You know, the, there are so many historical pointers towards the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. She said, I don't want to, I don't know what to make of it. I just know I don't want to believe it. Wow. Yeah, right. And, yeah. you know, really? yeah. well, I don't want to believe the implication. I know. Well, here's the thing, because yeah. acknowledging that Jesus really is king means you have to give your life to him. Yeah. Who do you say that I am? Or that but, there's consequences if you don't. Right. And, yeah. and I just want to add, like, you know, for us... The reason why martyrdom was so valued in the ancient church was because people understood that they they weren't trusting they weren't trusting in kind of the you know today there there's a massive cult around sort of like the health of the body which is a good thing and preserving the body and, and maintaining youth and health forever and ever mm-hmm. but for Christians the reality is like man our hope is not in our physical th- this body right now yeah because all of us are going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hope is that we, we've already experienced resurrection inside. Yeah, we're, we're already experiencing the first fruits of the new life. Paul even said, like, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the, the historical event that the camera's been talking about mm-hmm. has actual meaningful mm-hmm. ramifications for us. Mm-hmm. You know, our bodies yeah. will be destroyed, yeah. but our spirits are already alive. But then raised up and but then resurrected into glory, and so you know that's another thing too. It's just sort of a sort of a side theological point that a lot of people perceive that Christians believe, and even some Christians, a lot of Christians do believe this that the afterlife is going to be like a soul that's this immaterial soul that's kind of floating around in the clouds or whatever, whatever whatever they imagine heaven. But yeah, you've been watching the Bible Project, but they. But that the biblical story is, is that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead into a physical body that will now not perish or die, so will we. This, this body that's broken is going to die and perish, but it's going to be raised up into an imperishable state. So anyway, that's a side point. Okay, good, good, all good stuff. Yeah, all, all good stuff. Um, okay. Yeah. Nefesh, yeah, the Hebrew word for soul or life. But you just meditating yeah. on everything I learned there. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that, that was um, redemption accomplished. So Jesus accomplished redemption. So remember we talked about sin being like an infection that just everybody gets. <laughs> you, you can't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, so now there is a cure, right, to this problem of separation between God and humanity. And the, the cure is the, is the blood of Jesus, that restores, that redeems, that forgives, that cleanses and makes whole. And it, re- and it restores the relationship. It, <clears throat> it reverses, <clears throat> excuse me, the alienation problem, right? That all the way back to the fall. It reverses the alienation between God and humans by cleansing us of our sin and bringing us back into his presence. It reverses um, broken human relationships because it allows people now to live in such a way that instead of holding on to bitterness and resentment, they lay down their lives, they forgive their enemies, and there can be restoration possible. So it's, it's like a, you know, it's the, the cure of the blood of Jesus is like a reversal and an undoing of the fall. But here's the thing. If you have a doctor who um, suddenly comes up with the cure for cancer, um, what has to happen next now that it's been accomplished? Well, it has to get distributed and applied, right, to all the people who have cancer in the world, okay? And so it is with sin is that 
we've, if now there's this cure that has been accomplished, well, now it has to get applied. And that, is, that brings us to part five of the six-part story of Scripture. Okay, so here we go. So we could think about this, um, this stage of the story as the church on mission. This begins in the book of Acts, okay, right after the Gospels, and, um, and carries through the New Testament letters in, in various ways. Um, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were the greatest event to happen in human history, providing a way out of sin, evil, and death and back into God's presence. And there were a small number of people who were aware of that at the time. But not everyone knows about it. Okay? Not everyone knows the cure. Not everybody knows where to get healed and saved and fixed and delivered from the brokenness of the world. And so because of that, Jesus commissions his followers look around the room, that's us, to testify about him and the work he accomplished. And that's, that's the church on mission. So he ascends to his throne in heaven. He, t- he talks to his disciples. He tells them, go wait in the city until you are clothed with what? Power from on high. Okay, And so then he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to all the ends of the earth. So they're in a prayer meeting, and Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and they are indeed clothed with powder, because chicken little Peter, who betrayed Jesus and had a lot uh, a bigger um, talk than walk, all of a sudden gets transformed from um, a betrayer and a, and a, and a little wimp who, who, who would not stand for Jesus, now all of a sudden gets up with a boldness and begins to preach publicly to thousands of people, um, even in the face of opposition and persecution, and carries that out. And that is because the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and they were emboldened and empowered to preach the gospel. They were emboldened to take the, the cure and to begin to apply it by preaching the gospel, by healing the sick, casting out demons, and all of those things. Okay, So the church is the empowered, is the spirit-empowered witness of Christ on the earth that is meant that that our our mission is to witness to him and and we do that by making disciples right who also learn to obey and follow Jesus so here's here's the other thing though the king not only do are we called to witness to people to have them believe on the name of the Lord Jesus but we're also called to teach them to obey Right? Remember Matthew 28? Teach them, Jesus says, go make disciples and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. That is, teach them to embody a new way of life, a new set of values that are mine. Okay? And so the king, now God's king, who's been vindicated and ascended into his true throne in heaven, he calls his people, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to embody his own life and values in the world which are things like forgiving your enemies, setting captives free, healing the sick, telling the truth, um, all, those, all those kind of things, feeding the poor and the hungry, okay? So th- this, this should sound familiar, right? A king calling his people, the ruler is calling his people to embody his own life and values in the world, to reflect his goodness and beauty in the world. Sound familiar from some earlier points in our story? Where is that? Where, what is that a reflection of? From Eden. from Eden, from God giving Adam and Eve the commission to reflect him in the world. And then again at Mount Sinai, gives them the law so that they can live in a unique way and reflect his goodness and beauty to the world. And now Jesus calls his people as the king who shares in the fullness of God's own identity and deity. He does the same thing. He calls us to embody his own life and to reflect his his image as his image bearers in the world. And we do that every time we forgive an enemy, every time we cast out demons or we heal the sick or we preach the gospel or we meet somebody's need, we are imaging God. We're imaging God when we do that stuff because that's what God is like and we know that because he walked the earth with two feet and two hands. And that's what he did, the kind of stuff that he did. That's what Yahweh is like. Jesus said, if you've seen me father and essentially now go and do likewise okay so this is on the map uh or the timeline we should say where you are this is adoration church 
This is the you are here spot on the timeline. This is where we are in the biblical story of redemption. This is the spot. We are, we are in part five right now. We're going to talk about part six in just a second. But we are in part five. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, that, that we win, right? Um, that Jesus wins. But we are called to be those who apply his redeeming power and his redeeming blood to others. And we do that in large part by sharing the story. Right? That's why we gather tonight and we walk through this story so that it gets it. We steep in it and it gets into us so that we're able to articulate it in different ways to other people to invite them into this story, this story where they can find salvation, where they can find hope, where they can find freedom from addiction and slavery to sin and things like that and sickness and demonization. This is where we are in the story, and we are his people the people of the king who are called to embody his own life, his love, his power, so that others can come to know him. Isn't that awesome? I love that. Like if you think about a timeline, it's like we're right here, like in the Bible, like this is where we are. We're we're still in this this act of the play. Okay? So now let's let's look at the last the last part of this. What we might call redemption accomplished or redemption uh, consummated. So this is where things come to completion. And this is largely, this part of the story is largely told in Revelation. So we have the beginning of the story in Genesis, and we have the end of the story in Revelation, and they're placed that way in the Bible for a reason. Um, Lots of confusing stuff and symbolism in Revelation. It's a highly symbolic book in many ways. It's prophetic, um, apocalyptic literature, um, very visionary and things like that, but it tells us the story of how God is going to, um, the king is going to return to earth. But now, you see, this time it's going to be different. When Jesus came the first time, he was a king, but he came incognito as a little fragile baby in human flesh who was subject to uh, the pains and struggles of the world. But when he returns to the earth, it's not going to be in humble, incognito fashion. It is going to be in all of his radiant glory and power. In riding on a white horse with trumpets sounding with a sword coming from his mouth. Oh, man. I think of my favorite metal song playing in the background. <laughs> Jesus is coming, and he's coming for to do these things. He's coming to judge those who refuse his kingship, right? When we What we call hell, um, is, is eternal exile. So just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden and Israel experienced different temporary exiles, people who ultimately refuse to repent and turn towards the kingship of Jesus um, will be sent into an eternal exile, eternally exiled from his presence. And we need to have the Father's heart for people who, who the Bible tells us does not want anybody to have to go into that. But, but people choose that by rejecting the kingship of Jesus, Okay. So remember, though, that in, in wanting to save people from that, we're not just trying to get people to make a decision. We're, trying them, we're, we're wanting them to give their allegiance to a new king, from, from me as king to Jesus as king. And that's a, that's a large part of what salvation is, is, is turning your allegiance over to a new king and allowing him to be the Lord and ruler of your life. The other thing that Jesus is going to come back to do, of course, is to save those who eagerly await him and who do acclaim him as king. Okay? It is going to be a joyful day when the, when the, when the sky parts and the eastern sky parts and you see Jesus returning to the earth. Um, it is going to be a joyful day for us who follow him. But the other thing he's going to do is he's going to restore the world to what it was created to be. This is really clear in Revelation. This isn't just, you know, we're not going... Uh, by and by, pie in the sky, playing harps on clouds, right? That is not the biblical vision of what the end of the world is or what the afterlife is. So in, in fact, what I, what I want us to do for the very last thing here is if you have a Bible to open up or a phone Bible, there's probably some, on, <laughs> there's probably some around the room if you look. There's probably one within arm's length. But let's just read what, uh, what this looks like according to Scripture. And this is like, I mean, Revelation 21 is almost the end of the Bible. Revelation 22 is the last chapter of Scripture. 
and you get to the end of Revelation, and there's all this crazy stuff about angels and scrolls and death and apocalyptic battles and hell and the devil and the beast and all this stuff. Then you get to, then you get to the end, and you see again that, as I said earlier, the the book ends of the Bible are beauty and glory and goodness and people dwelling with God. Okay. And that we, we never want to lose sight of that, right? The Bible doesn't um, only tell a story of sin and judgment and then um, uh, rewards and punishment. It tells a story of a complete renewal and restoration of the whole creation. <clears throat> so somebody who's got Revelation 21 open, just read nice and loud for us uh, the first seven verses. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice, God's wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Amen. Amen. <laughs> the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. If my baby wasn't sleeping right now, I'd, I'd jump up and down and shout hallelujah, but the baby's up. He's sleeping right now. And then, of course, you know, it goes on to describe the, 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 um, the gloomy end of those who have rejected God's kingship and, and chose um, sin and self instead. But that, that's the, that is like, that's Eden restored. God dwelling with, it says that God will come to them, right? Heaven comes down to earth, okay? So we don't get Star Trek laser beamed up to heaven, the heaven comes to earth and materializes here and there's a restoration of all of creation and God's presence fills, his glory fills the earth from sea to, to sea and we live in his presence forever in a renewed creation and we're going to do stuff. It's not just going to be like everybody stands in a circle like this and goes, holy, 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 holy. We're, it's, a, it's a world, it's a created order. It says that we're going to rule over nations and things like that. I mean, it's going to be amazing. And there's going to be no more sickness or pain or sorrow or death. So, so this is this is what um, you know. I think having this story like that, kind of a big picture view of the Bible, and just refreshing yourself on that often is a really helpful tool for um, for for sharing the gospel um, with others. A couple more, just brief comments. Since since I was pretty good about time, and it's not yet seven o'clock. We have five or eight o'clock. We have five minutes left. Let me just hit a couple points. These are kind of a little bit more fine points, but these are really good questions to think about. Okay, so we're talking about how the Bible is a narrative and a story, and much of it reads that way. But if you have noticed, there are parts that don't. There's poetry, there's prophecy, there's the Psalms and all that stuff, right? So a lot of the Bible does not tell this story. So, so what's the deal about those other parts, whether they're wisdom literature or Psalms or the New Testament letters that aren't explicitly telling the story? Well, you, you, you'll see that the Bible is either telling the story through the narrative genre or it's presupposing it, okay? And so the story is still central. And things, we might think of those other categories or genres as commentary on the primary narrative of Scripture, so, for instance, the Psalms are commentary on much of Israel's time in exile, their hopes, their longing, their fears, their, their struggles, their joys, and things like that, right? Um, Revelation is kind of a commentary from above on what is happening spiritually throughout history. Um, 
the letters of the New Testament are kind of a commentary from the side that are addressing issues in the early church and things like that, right? So everything else that doesn't explicitly flow like a narrative or a story, it presupposes this one story that we've talked about tonight, okay? And um, sometimes the Bible, it it gives you summaries of the story and other non-narrative passages, but now we're getting into too much kind of seminary (laughs) sort of stuff. But... Um, and then just finally, this, this overarching storyline